This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. Tonight's special guest is Dr. Michael Sala, who returns after three years. We will discuss the trillion-dollar lawsuit that exposes the secret Bilderberg Gold Treaty and funding of extraterrestrial projects. I will also discuss China-U.S. trading balance. Is it bad policy? or payback for CIA use of stolen World War II gold. It does make you wonder why we are so lenient with China as it relates to trade when most of our exports have to pay tariffs. Is this trading balance payback? Dr. Michael Sala will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, just go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You'll receive your login immediately and will have access to all of our material audio, video, and even the very special Manticore Forum, where people around the world discuss the real news that matter. And stop wasting time looking for an MMS source. You can get it right from us. Go to the Veritas store, where you can also purchase our 8GB metal-cased USB drive with Seasons 1, 2, or 3, plus bonus material. And the book Veritas Scriptum, The Truth is Written. Volume 1 is now available too. Over 400 pages long, 
and it includes our very first 11 interviews now in book format. We will continue making these books available as interviews are transcribed. You can buy individual transcripts on PDF or get a significant discount when you buy the book. And to help with those transcripts, if you want a subscription but cannot afford one, click on the free subscription link for more information. If you are ready, willing, and capable of transcribing our shows, visit that link and we'll get in touch with you shortly. And I want to give you an update on the 2012 International UFO Congress. I had a great time as usual. Congratulations to Open Minds for another successful year. The topics, the speakers, and most importantly, all of you who attended made the difference. You have no idea how happy I was to spend time with so many very test listeners from literally almost every continent. This year, I wasn't able to capture that many interviews. Why? Because I spent most of the time interacting with the participants, hearing your stories, and connecting dots. That being said, I was still able to capture a few important interviews, including Chuck Zukowski about new discoveries and the cattle mutilation phenomenon, Dr. Lynn Gitai and the 15th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights, and an exclusive two-hour interview, which will also become a full Veritas show with Sergeant Clifford Stone. Then shorter impromptu talks with David Sarita, Stan Romanek, Barbara Lamb, and a very powerful short talk with Colin Andrews, who was the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award at the conference. Well deserved for all his hard work and sacrifices. All of this on video and audio coming up in the next few days, exclusively for Veritas members. Don't wait any longer and subscribe today. And now that this conference is over, I will be attending another conference. This time, I will be the master of ceremonies. The speakers, Stanford Friedman, Kerry Cassidy, Jay Whitener, Norio Hayakawa, Scotty Roberts, Anthony Sanchez, David Weatherly, and many more. This is the 2012 UFO Paranormal Summit in Sacramento, California on June 16th and 17th. There's a banner on our website where you can start ordering your tickets today. I hope to see many of you there. And to get in touch with me, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. One of the enigmas of U.S. trade policy is the willingness of policymakers to allow China open access to U.S. markets while China throws up many obstacles to American imports. This has predictably led to the U.S.-China trade imbalance becoming an important political issue. A mysterious trillion-dollar lawsuit filed on November 23, 2011 in the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York claims that $134 billion worth of gold was secretly given to the U.S. government in the mid-1930s by the then Nationalist Government of China for safekeeping. The lawsuit claims that 1934 U.S. Federal Reserve notes were issued to the Chinese government and the gold transferred to the Federal Reserve Bank. It is claimed that a total sum of almost $1 trillion, representing both the principal and accumulated interest of the 1934 Federal Reserve notes, was fraudulently taken. 
Could the existence of this black gold be kept secret as to not cause the price of gold to crash? Could this be why the U.S. has a preferential trade policy with China, but this policy is not reciprocal? As of November 2011, China holds $1.1 trillion of U.S. Treasury securities. And did you know that a recent investigation by mainstream media showed that some U.S. bridges and roads are being built by Chinese firms with Chinese workers? Yes, you heard right. U.S. infrastructure being built by Chinese companies with Chinese workers. Did the United States lose World War III to the Chinese and not a bomb was dropped? And the casualty of war was the United States industrial base? This seems to indicate that there is a covert agreement between the United States and China, implicitly allowing all of this for one reason, payback. To discuss this and much more, Dr. Michael Sala is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Dr. Michael Sala is a pioneer in the development of exopolitics. He is the author of several books that include exopolitics, political implications of the extraterrestrial presence, and exposing U.S. government policies on extraterrestrial life. Dr. Sala was an assistant professor and researcher in residence in the School of International Service at the American University from 1996 to 2004. He has a PhD in government from the University of Queensland, Australia. He is also the founder of the Exopolitics Institute, a nonprofit organization that analyzes the political implications of the extraterrestrial presence. And to learn more about Dr. Michael Sala and his work, visit his website at exopolitics.org. And directly from somewhere in the beautiful Hawaii, I would like to welcome Dr. Michael Sala. Hello, Michael, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Wonderful, Mount Aloha. I'm here in uh, sunny Honolulu. Beautiful day in uh, February. So, great place to be, and I'm glad to be on your show. Oh, my pleasure. It's been exactly three years, Michael. The first time I interviewed you, probably I had uh, done a not even not even a dozen interviews, so I'm glad to have you back three years after. And for those who are listening, if you if this is the first time you've listened to Dr. Michael Sala, which I doubt, but if you do, I highly encourage you to listen to that very first interview that we did. It is absolutely jam-packed with that great information. But Michael, you recently contacted me because you wrote a few articles dealing with geopolitics. The first article is entitled trillion-dollar lawsuit exposes secret Bilderberg Gold Treaty and funding of extraterrestrial projects. 
The article says that a mysterious trillion-dollar lawsuit was filed on November 23, 2011, in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, and it claims that $134.5 billion worth of gold was secretly given to the U.S. government in the mid-1930s by the then-nationalist government of China for safekeeping. Please, this is so interesting. Take it from there. Well, Mel, it really is a fascinating case. It was something that I first heard of, like many people, back in 2009, when there were these reports of a mysterious case in uh, near Chiasso, Italy, or Chiasso, Switzerland. It's a Swiss-Italian border town, mm -hmm. where there were these bonds that were apprehended by the Italian financial police that amounted to $134.5 billion. And soon after that, we hear that uh, the people that uh, were apprehended were released, that they were two Japanese, and the story just kind of dropped out of the headlines. That was it. Um, and so it was a very mysterious case, and people weren't sure, well, was this real or not? Was there anything to this? So many of us that were aware of that were just kind of puzzled by it all and just kind of continued doing uh, whatever research we had been uh, doing. Uh, and what happened was that in... Uh, November of last year, there was this lawsuit that was filed, as you, as you mentioned, in the uh, Southern District of uh, uh, District Court of New York, and that was uh, involving a large sum of money, and it mentioned the Chiasso case, that uh, incident in, in Switzerland, and it really brought home that this was a very real situation, that uh, there was these huge amounts of U.S. high-denomination high Federal Reserve notes that were in circulation and people were trying, trying to redeem these. Now, of course, those trying to redeem those high-denomination notes believed that they were genuine and were trying to do what they felt was the proper procedure for redeeming these notes. And, of course, we have these examples of the media saying that uh, this was all kind of a fraudulent exercise and, and of course that 2009 incident was an example of that where many in the media dismissed it as just being a case of these high denomination 1934 Federal Reserve notes being fraudulent. Well, in this case that was filed by Neil Keenan on behalf of uh, the Dragon family, an, an entity in um, in Taiwan or in um, parts of Asia, they were contending that these bonds were in fact legitimate, that they dated back to that period in the 19, late 1930s, just prior to the invasion of China by Japan, where the then nationalist government, or the Kuomintang, as it was then known, were desperate to try to hide the goal because they were aware that Japan was imminently uh, about to invade. And so they were desperate to hide this goal. And so apparently, according to the events described in this lawsuit, a large quantity of gold was at least to the United States government. Um, and that gold was taken off the hands of the nationalist Chinese. And in exchange, the Chinese received these high denomination Federal Reserve notes. And what's important to mention here is that 
the court case actually refers to a second batch of these notes, that that June 2009 incident I mentioned, that involved $134.5 billion, as you mentioned, but the lawsuit refers to a complementary, a different set of Federal Reserve notes coming to $145.5 billion. Uh, can, can you repeat that? Because you got, uh, got caught off for the last 10 seconds. Sure. Well, basically what, uh, what happened was that that incident in 2009, that involved $134.5 billion in U.S. Federal Reserve notes. Now, that is a different batch of Federal Reserve notes to those that are actually contested in this district court lawsuit that was filed in November in the New York District Court, uh, which involves a sum of $145.5 billion. So those two sums of money, 134.5 and 145.5, are basically part of the same historical process whereby the Chinese nationalist government leased to the United States its gold because it wanted to put the gold in safe hands because it knew that if Japan invaded, that that gold could be, in fact, confiscated, stolen, looted, whatever. And so they did this with the full intention that eventually the government of China would be able to regain possession of the, of that gold or at the very least redeem the Federal Reserve notes that were issued against that gold. And so that's the kind of background to this to this uh, 2011 uh, November case that was filed in the Federal District Court of New York. How did they transfer the gold in the 1930s from China to the United States? Well, that's where we bring in Benjamin Fulford. Now, for those that don't know who Benjamin Fulford is, he used to be the Asia correspondent for Forbes magazine, which is a very high-quality magazine that uh, caters for the business community. And so this was a, a very responsible position where Fulford was able to make connections with uh, really very powerful movers and shakers in the economic and, and financial world in Japan and other Asian countries. So in around 2007, uh, Fulford leaves Forbes magazine and he is now commenting as an independent economic analyst and he has made a connection with a very mysterious Asian, Japanese, Chinese secret society, which is supposedly giving him protection because of some of his views that had become so controversial. For example, questioning 9-11, saying that it was an inside job and pointing out high-level corruption within the Japanese uh, political system and, and the, the fact that the Rockefeller family essentially controlled Japanese political and economic life and so forth. So um, he was really... Uh, out there and so he felt that he was under threat and claims that he actually was threatened on more than one occasion and so eventually he gets protection from this secret Asian society saying that uh, they like what he's doing the fact that he's actually telling people what's really happening around the world and that they wanted to protect him from this uh, kind of criminal organization that is associated with the Rockefeller family 
And so uh, Fulford then begins to talk on behalf of this kind of white dragon society. And so he, uh, during the many briefings and consultations he has with people in that kind of nebulous world, uh, he starts to talk about this kind of hidden gold, and he talks about things such as uh, what we were referring to, like the uh, 2009 Kiaso incident. He begins; uh, he was the first to begin talking about that. That this was all an effort to try to try to redeem this gold, and and he refers specifically to the case, to the Keenan case. He's very familiar with Neil Keenan, the man who launched the the lawsuit that was filed in the uh, New York District Court, and and. Fulford was able to fill in a lot of the background. Um, he's been working with David Wilcock uh, from Divine Cosmos, and he's given a, a few interviews with uh, Wilcock. And basically what uh, he claims, what Fulford claims, is that there were seven U.S. destroyers that took the gold from mainland China, from the, nine, from the nationalist government, with the consent of the nationalist government, took that gold... Uh, to, to the U.S. for safekeeping, and that was how the gold was taken out of the United uh, out of uh, China through seven U.S. Navy destroyers. Um, and so, yeah, that's basically how it was done, all covertly, of course, without the um, without the U.S. public knowing. Even though when Fulford talked about this, he said, "Well, if you check historical records, you should be able to find, in fact, that uh, this large quantity of gold was taken." by the U.S. Navy from the Chinese nationalist government to the U.S. for safekeeping. But I haven't found any evidence that that actually was ever made uh, public. Do you know the exact year when that transfer occurred? It was sometime uh, just prior to the Japanese invasion, 1937, 1938. Okay, so so that was uh, immediately after uh, Fort Knox, which, by the way, folks, the, the official name for Fort Knox it's known as Fort Knox, but it's the United States Bullion Depository. Now, a lot of people don't know this, Michael, that in 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt issued Executive Order 6102, which outlawed the private ownership of gold coins, gold bullion, and gold certificates by American citizens, forcing them to sell these to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve had a windfall profit from $4 billion to 12 billion between 33 and 37. So when the Chinese gold came, that was immediately after the uh, Fornox was built because after Roosevelt confiscated all this gold, we didn't have a place to put all this. I find this very, very interesting that Roosevelt confiscated the gold. Do you know why? Yeah, well, that that really is a very interesting uh, question. Why was was this done. I mean, the uh, as you mentioned, the executive order in 1933, and that was in 1934, uh, that that resulted in the Gold Act that was passed by Congress in 1934, right. which prohibited the private ownership of gold, um, aside from those involved professionally in um, selling gold jewelry and so forth. But essentially, the private ownership of gold was um, prohibited. And of course, uh, the Federal Reserve was the main beneficiary of of this because Mm -hmm. Roosevelt directed that all the gold, all the private gold would be sold to the Federal Reserve. And the the Federal Reserve realized, as you mentioned, a huge profit because um, initially it bought gold from private citizens 
at uh, I think it was around twenty one dollars um, per per ounce per troy ounce, mm-hmm. and then uh, within twelve months or something like that, it was then selling that same gold internationally uh, for thirty five dollars. So there there was a huge profit that was realised by the by the Federal Reserve. Uh, but essentially, it seems that the, the Federal Reserve felt that the way in which uh, the U.S. dollar could best be supported was to, to make it a gold-backed currency and that it needed gold to be able to do this. And um, dispossessing private citizens of the gold was, was no obstacle to them. Um, and, of course, the Chinese gold that was uh, secretly, I guess, being taken into the United States through the assistance of the Navy and these uh, agreements with the nationalist government of China, frightened about the consequences of the Japanese invasion, that that really contributed to to what the Federal Reserve was doing, which was to basically amass sufficient quantities of gold to make make the U.S. Uh, a future world currency. And I, and I think this is probably part of the long-term agenda that um, back then, of course, in the 1930s, the United States was not a superpower. The superpowers at the time, were, of course, were the old, were old European countries yeah. uh, like, like uh, Britain and, and France, and, and Germany, of course, was beginning to recover. Um, but people in the Federal Reserve System, people in, in England or the United Kingdom and so forth, realized that the future would be one where the United States dollar would become the the future world reserve. And they were basically, I believe, creating the possibility of turning the U.S. Federal Reserve into the future world reserve. And I think we are seeing this even today, and I can talk a little bit about that later in terms of how the Federal Reserve uh, is, is quite willing to intervene in foreign banking crisis and and loan and assist foreign banks so that they can resolve whatever kind of credit liquidity problems that they have. So I think that this was something that was being planned back then in the 1930s. Those that own the Federal Reserve, which as you and many of your listeners know, are really private banks. Private banks own the Federal Reserve system, even though you have the Federal Reserve Board, which is a, a federally appointed board so that's where the kind of uh, there is a, a kind of mixture of governmental and private ownership and control when it comes to the federal reserve system but essentially the the ownership and the product and the profits much of it goes to the private banks that have put up the initial collateral for the Re- federal reserve system and so by them by the federal reserve being able to buy a lot of gold and then uh increase their holdings by being able to sell that private gold confiscated from private citizens to to foreign entities at inflated prices. It meant that the Federal Reserve Bank was able to dramatically increase its holdings, thereby loan more money to the U.S. government, make bigger profits, and begin the process by which the Federal Reserve would become what it is today, which is a, which is essentially a kind of world central bank even though uh, we do have the Bank of International Settlements, which uh, nominally is the kind of world uh, central bank or close to it. But I think the de facto world central bank is the Federal Reserve because it is the one that does step in as the bank of last resort to, to help other countries and central banks restore whatever kind of liquidity problems they have at any point. And a lot of people, once again, going back to the name Fort Knox, when you 
think of Fort Knox, you think of gold, and you think that's probably the largest reserve, but that's not true. The largest reserve is by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and uh, they have an underground vault, folks, under Manhattan. And after Bretton Woods in the 70s, when, when uh, Nixon immediately disconnected uh, gold from, from, from the dollar, that's when the economy really started taking off because they started printing more money and now they didn't have a limit of how much they could print. This is what we are, where we are today with the derivatives and all this, let's call it legalized casino, don't you think? Well, the way it has become uh, is uh, a system where financially uh, paper money is not is not the king anymore. I mean, there was a day where you know, money that was in circulation that was uh, really the way in which you could determine uh, a, a country's wealth. Now, with the computer systems, I mean, it's all digital. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank can simply, uh, through some keystrokes, issue billions of dollars in, in credit for its, uh, for its uh, subscriber banks, and these subscriber banks can then loan out vast sums of money to private individuals and companies, and, and therefore we have an expansion of the monetary supply so that uh, now, um, as you know, it's only, a, like in the U.S. economy, only three, around 3% is actually printed money. Mm-hmm. The other 97% is all digital money. This is all money that just is created through the Federal Reserve and its, uh, and its banks, uh, affiliate banks, uh, making loans available to customers. Do you think, Michael, that the reason why they took... Uh possession of the gold, uh, I mean the Federal Reserve, was because they knew that the money they're printing has absolutely no value, and they also knew that they would be, quote-unquote, lending so much money to to the government that they knew they wouldn't get paid in the future, and that's why they're holding the gold as collateral? Well, they know, as anyone who has been following the way in which central banks have operated historically, uh, and you can look at the, the, the Bank of England uh, since the 17th century, that when banks loan money to governments, the end result is that governments end up owning a lot of money to banks okay. and pay a lot of interest to the banks. And so when the Federal Reserve System was set up, uh, where the, the Federal Reserve was now given control over the monetary supply, it was inevitable that you would have this huge expansion of government debt, U.S. government debt, and that the result would be that the Federal Reserve Bank and the um, the private banks that prov- provided the initial kind of um, collateral for the Federal Reserve would end up owning a lot of uh, the, the the kind of um, uh, resources of the United States and any other country that has set up a similar system. And so that meant that whatever money was initially collated or resources uh, collected by a government such as the the gold reserves that were in Fort Knox, inevitably that would become part of the kind of way in which the Federal Reserve debt was was now um, repaid, or or at least that the debt that the U.S. government has accumulated over the decades to the Federal Reserve, that the gold in Fort Knox would now be the collateral of the Federal Reserve. So it, all intents and purposes, that money uh, no longer belongs to the to the American people because the Federal Reserve can say, well, this this money is, uh, sorry, this gold is now collateral for the huge debt that the U.S. government owns to the Federal Reserve Bank and the private banks that own all the U.S. treasuries. 
which is something that we've known all along that uh, that goal is there for that reason. But the the lawsuit, what is the purpose of the lawsuit and what do you think the result uh, of that lawsuit will be? Well, that's really the key question here. What is the purpose of this lawsuit? Now, obviously, a lawsuit is not an inexpensive thing to do. Right. The the, the company or the the legal firm that put together this uh, brief for Neil Keenan uh, it was around 110, 111 pages, uh, something that uh, definitely was not easy to put together, and outlined the, the chief complaints uh, that Keenan had, and I um, named the defendants, the people and institutions that Keenan felt had defrauded him of the bonds that he says that he was um, legally given uh, uh, kind of authority to dispose of or redeem through the Dragon family. And so because the, these bonds were defrauded or taken from him uh, through fraudulent representation by a man by the name of Daniel Del Bosco, with the aid of a whole host of international organizations, the World Economic Forum, the Italian Financial Police, the Italian government, um, what basically happened was that uh, Keenan felt that the way in, only way in which he could regain possession of these bonds that were fraudulently taken from him uh, by this man would be to launch a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court of, uh, of New York. And so the intent of hiring a, a very kind of credible and long-standing U.S. law firm was to highlight that this was a very serious case, that in fact there was some very big money involved in this and that Keenan felt that he had a right to be able to um, contest the way in which that money was defrauded and sue or basically have the defendants, uh, some of those as I, as I mentioned being official government entities uh, including the United Nations, that, uh, that they they would actually have to be accountable for the way in which that money was defrauded. And so the, the ultimate goal of the lawsuit, I think, um, is not only to try to get regain possession of those bonds, but also to bring to the public's attention the, the fact that these very high-value, high-denomination 1934 Federal Reserve notes were issued in a, in a way that was kind of very covert and done so that those that eventually would try to redeem these bonds for very legitimate gold that had been legally given to the U.S. for safekeeping would end up being defrauded in some way or would have great difficulty in redeeming those bonds. And and I think the court case has those simultaneous goals of, of, of not only trying to regain possession of the bonds and, and bringing to... Um, public awareness what 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 is what is going on uh, but to but to also make the public aware that there has been this historical process by which the u s government or the Federal Reserve in particular has come into the possession of large quantities of gold that has not been declared publicly at all so in a sense it's it's black gold it's not white gold or or gold that we know that uh, has been mined and has been made available for public sale and trade, that this kind of black gold is gold that has been accumulated and secretly transferred and held without any kind of public 
accounting and so that way there's no real estimate of or, or no real accurate figure as to how much of this kind of black gold exists out there. So I think the, law, the court case really does have a number of goals uh, in it and one of those is to really expose to the world what has been happening. What do you think the uh, what is the status of the, of the lawsuit? I know it's very recent, November 23rd, 2011. It takes time. But do you think the court will actually hear this case? Well, uh, I I know it's it's something that uh, Neil Keenan and the people that are working with him believe uh, is solidly supported, and they have a lot of historical documents to support their contentions. and And I think, and I think that they are very confident that they have sufficient uh, sufficient documentation to basically force the authorities that have been managing this kind of black hole behind the scenes to come to some kind of compromise. I, or, or at the very least, maybe the, the goal is not to reach a compromise and just kind of make the, the world aware that there has been these large quantities of gold kind of secretly siphoned uh, off to government authorities for all for various purposes. But, but, but I think uh, from the perspective of Keenan, his goal really is to prove in a court, in a court of law, that he is the representative of this entity called the Dragon Family, who were defrauded by this individual, Daniel Del Bosco, along with a, a number of other official um, defendants, uh, agencies, Italian government, United Nations, World Economic Forum, and so forth, that they were part of this kind of international conspiracy to defraud uh, Keenan and the Dragon family of bonds that are rightfully theirs and which are subject to being redeemed. And I wonder, if the court rules in the plaintiff's favor, would the judgment be that of a symbolic nature, or will they actually make the United States uh, pay? Because I think what happened was the, the, the gold was transferred eventually to the Federal Reserve. And as you know, the Federal Reserve is an independent entity, not federal, not government, and they don't have any reserves. But our own Congress doesn't have any jurisdiction or oversight over them, so we can't even do anything. So that's why I'm saying, is the judgment going to be just symbolic? Well, I, I think whatever judgment is finally reached, it, it can have some really important impacts. Uh, I, I doubt that the judge can do too much in, in terms of being able to kind of uh, uh, determine who exactly defrauded whom in this case. I mean, mm -hmm. if, it's a, if it's a matter of just one individual, Daniel Del Bosco, kind of uh, misrepresenting himself and collecting this $145.5 billion dollars of bonds from Neil Keenan, um, you know, the judge might say, well, this, this was something that uh, uh, is really out of the jurisdiction of the district court because it happened um, outside of the United, uh, United States and, and it can't be proved sufficiently that Del Bosco was actually an agent of uh, the kind of entities that uh, Keenan is, cont is contending, which, of course, is the you know, United Nations, Italian government and so forth. But I... I really do question whether or not uh, the ultimate goal of this is to be successful in, in court as opposed to just producing a whole mass of documentation into the public arena because uh, clearly as the court case is contested and Keenan and his uh, attorneys present their evidence, there's going to be a lot of historical documentation that is 
uh, brought forward. And I, and I think that documentation is, is what is really going to scare a lot of people that are involved in the covert trade of black gold because a lot of this documentation is, is, is going to be very solid and, and point to a very real historical processes that has been unfolding behind the scenes. And so I, I think that really um, that is their trump card, presenting all of this historical data through a court case into the public arena. And that means that the media can pick up on it and report on it and really break things open. And this is part of, I think, um, what um, uh, what has uh, been claimed by Benjamin Fulford and uh, and also David Woodcock as, as part of this ultimate process or the, what we are seeing now as a kind of transition in the financial system where the old world order in terms of the financial control of the Rockefeller family, the, Rock, uh, the Rothschilds and so forth, that that kind of international financial system is being challenged and indeed collapsing or, or being forced to make some very major um, sacrifices or, or changes because of the growing power and influence of the this kind of Chinese Asian secret society, which is making a lot of these records and are making a lot of this information now part of the, the public sector. So I think this court case really is part of of this battle and the way in which the documents come out, I think is going to strengthen the hand of those that do want to change the system and make uh, people aware of what has been secretly happening. And, and so I don't think you need to have a successful success in court for, for this process to move forward in the kind of uh, direction that I think all of us would benefit from. And folks, you'll know where we're going with this. this I just wanted to have a, a solid background, a chronology of events as we progress with the interview, but this individual, uh, Neil Keenan, the, the principal plaintiff, is he is he representing somebody or a group from Asia? Yes, he says that he was appointed uh, back in early 2009 by the Dragon family, uh, that the Dragon family is this uh, kind of collection of Asian royal families that have possession or knowledge of of the location of a lot of the gold uh, that belonged to the royal families of, of Asia, and that and that uh, many uh, much of that gold was actually given as collateral or given to uh, given to various authorities in the United States Federal Reserve as collateral, and these bonds issued in return. And so now these families want to redeem those bonds. Apparently, they they have been unsuccessful. Um, that. And and so they then eventually decided that Neil Keenan was someone that may be more success, su successful than they had been in trying to redeem the bonds. Because you know we need to kind of remember here that uh, when it comes to the to the nationalist government of of um, China, uh, that they don't really have international status. There's only a, a small number of countries that recognise the nationalist government of China. Um, the Vatican being one of the very few um, and other kind of very small entities. But most of the major nations in the world re re recognize the People's Republic of China as being the, the legal representative of the Chinese people and that the nationalist government on, on Taiwan doesn't represent anyone. So obviously uh, anyone with um, high-value bonds or, or, or things that they that have a high sensitivity can't use kind of normal diplomatic protocols 
for example, you know, if 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 there were these high denomination 1934 Federal Reserve notes that the Chinese government wanted to uh, redeem in, say, Switzerland, uh, they could simply put these notes in a diplomatic pouch and have them sent over to um, to Switzerland for redemption. Why haven't so, they then? Well, because this is the nationalist government of Taiwan, and, mm. and Switzerland does not recognize Taiwan as right. an independent nation. Uh, very few nations recognize Taiwan at all. No major nation recon- recognizes Taiwan aside from um, you know, small, 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 very small kind of island states that the Taiwanese have been able to kind of like buy off, and, and the Vatican, uh, interestingly enough. But essentially it means that um, the Taiwanese government or people like the royal, like the dragon family that are associated with the Taiwanese government uh, can't simply use the diplomatic uh, protocols that exist for moving around these high-value bonds. And so uh, they have to do it surreptitiously. And as we saw in the case of that uh, June 2009 incident on the Italian-Swiss border, uh, people moving these these bonds, uh, if the authorities are tipped off in some way, they can be arrested and the bonds confiscated legally. And, of course, that means then that uh, that the owners of those bonds are kind of, um, you know, down a creek without a paddle. Uh, what, what can they do if the authorities confiscate bonds uh, that haven't been declared um, normally through through the customs process? So it's, it's a very difficult process, a very difficult situation to be. And so I, I think, though, that the Dragon family recognized that Neil Keenan was someone who had certain skills and abilities to be able to move these bonds safely across international borders and to have them redeemed in Switzerland or wherever they needed to go to be redeemed. And so they transferred the bonds to him, made him the legal kind of agent or representative for them in the redemption of these bonds. A trustee. Yes, exactly, a trustee. And so that happened in early 2009. And then in September of 2009, uh, what happened was that Keenan was uh, was recommended uh, to meet with this gentleman, Daniel Del Bosco, and felt that Del Bosco was someone who would help him in the redemption process, that Del Bosco had a lot of kind of international connections, good, a good relationship with the Vatican and so forth. And, you know, there is a Vatican connection here, which is no surprise, because of as, course. I, as I mentioned, the Vatican is, is one of the few states that actually recognizes Taiwan. As as a, as a independent state and uh, diplomatically, and so Keenan uh, then in September of 2009 hands over this series of bonds, 145.5 billion dollars worth of bonds, to Daniel Del Bosco, who Keenan felt would uh, be able to help in the redemption of those of those bonds, and the idea being that once the bonds were re- were redeemed that the money would then be used for uh, humanitarian purposes uh, after the the people involved in you know representing uh, would get paid off in terms of agency fees and trustee fees and so forth but at some point uh, Del Bosco essentially um, defrauded Keenan of those bonds and of course the Dragon family of those bonds and so it, it really does raise the question then well you know who is Del Bosco and and how genuine is Keenan 
So Del Bosco, you said that he defrauded. Does that mean that he redeemed the, 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 the bonds? Well, he, he collected the bonds off Keenan, mm -hmm. and then essentially um, he doesn't return them or doesn't um, cooperate with Keenan in any way. So he, he has done something with the bonds, and it's not clear exactly. Well, uh, I doubt very much that he was successful in redeeming them. I think uh, what he was successful in doing was kind of dispossessing Keenan of those bonds and and passing them on to someone or an agency that would that would benefit from those bonds never being redeemed. Because I think ultimately we have to consider that who was it that um, issued those bonds in the first place, and who was it that or who is it that would have to redeem these bonds. And it comes down to uh, the same entities uh, that we've been talking about before, like the Federal Reserve Banking System, the, the Swiss Gold Banks, the, that these private banks that make up the central banking system around the world, right. they were the ones that were uh, behind the issue of the initial Federal Reserve notes uh, given to the uh, nationalist government. And so they would be the ones that would ultimately would have to pay out. And so they did, they had no interest in doing that. And, of course, then it bring, raises the question of, well, to what extent do you have uh, intelligence agencies uh, of different nations cooperating with this kind of uh, international banking system in trying to collect vast sums of gold, vast quantities of gold, and issue these these bonds in return, which uh, they have no intention of ever, ever honouring and basically just kind of holding off for decades and decades um, and eventually making the whole thing so kind of nebulous and so difficult that anyone possessing these bonds will have very little chance of eventually redeeming them. So I, I think in terms of what Del Bosco did with those bonds, um, he, he probably uh, was probably instructed to hand them off to some intelligence agency, maybe the CIA or some other uh, MI6, and uh, the, the bonds basically just taken out of circulation, or maybe they'll be sold off to some other kind of private individual uh, foolish enough to make an investment in these 1934 gold bonds. Well, that, that's from the outside, uh, just speculating here. That's, that's what it sounds like, that Del Bosco was working for a major intelligence agency and now disposing or, or, or taking the bonds away from somebody, putting them in a safe somewhere and never to be redeemed because that's what's needed for, for them to be able to, to open that can of worms. But in that altercation, that, that arrest, if you will, that occurred in, in, in the border of Italy and Switzerland, what was the outcome of that arrest? Well, basically, the, the two Japanese uh, citizens uh, that were arrested, uh, they were eventually released. The Italian authorities didn't didn't charge them with anything. Um, they released them because there was no demonstrated intent to kind of um, uh, collect on those bonds by these uh, by these two Japanese citizens. They were essentially just couriers. They were carrying the bonds mm -hmm. into Switzerland. Um, to as part of Keenan's efforts to redeem redeem these bonds, uh, that that was in June of 2009, and and of course as I mentioned, it was in uh, early 2009 that the Dragon family appointed Keenan as their agent or trustee, if you like, for for the various uh, gold uh, bonds certificates that they had. So you you had this um, this collection of bonds that. Uh, that was being transferred through Italy uh, by these two Japanese uh, citizens, 
and um, eventually they were released, and the bonds are now still in the possession, I would assume, of the Italian financial police. That was my next question. What happened? Who took possession of the of the bonds? The Italian financial police, and um, legally they are able to get, I think it's uh, somewhere around 30% or 40%, uh, because if you don't declare um, any amount of financial uh, instruments that you bring into a, com into a country, uh, that, that can be legally confiscated and uh, up to around some percentage, 30%, 40%, can be uh, taken from the value of those, of those bonds, of those financial currencies. That's a fine. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Uh, so essentially it would have been a, a very large windfall for the Italian financial police. So uh, now the question would be, um, are the Italian authorities trying to redeem those bonds secretly so that they can get a, get a, a big slice of you know, the, the kind of face value of those bonds? So, so that, that may be happening behind the scenes. And, okay, they take 30%. Now, who's getting the 70%? Well, that would be legally a, a situation where the Italian financial police would have to deal with uh, Keenan, uh, who, as the agent or trustee of those, of those bonds, not only the ones that were um, taken from Del Bosco, but also that were seized from the, uh, at Chiasso, Italy, that that Keenan would be the person that the Italian financial police would have to deal with um, and return that 70% if, right. if, if the Italian authorities were able to redeem it. So, But that's another question, uh, uh, because obviously, as, as we know, this involves some, some very powerful institutional actors and everyone is going to be taking their cut, wants to take a cut. But, right. it's, but it, it's feasible that the Italian financial police, the Italian authorities, could have... Um, those bonds redeemed to a certain extent and, and take uh, 30% of the face value. So if I understand correctly, just to make sure everybody's clear, in the 1930s, the nationalist government of China decides to transfer the gold to the United States because they knew the Japanese were coming. That gold came to the United States. The United States gave them the bonds as collateral, and it was only a lease so they expected the, the gold bullion back. That has not happened. Now that it hasn't happened, that's why they want to redeem their bonds. Is that, am I right? Exactly, yes. That was only leased to them for a specific number of years, uh, 50 years, uh, 30 years. These are the, these are the kind of um, numbers that I've seen on some of these uh, bonds, that, uh, the, the figures mm -hmm. uh, uh, around 30 to 50 years, that they would be eventually redeemed. And... Um, or, and the gold returned to the rightful owners. Now, now of course, uh, who are the rightful owners of gold that was previously owned by the nationalist government of China, who at the time uh, resided in China, uh, and in that at that period, you know, tai, uh, Taiwan was was Formosa, that was a Japanese territory. Right. So now that uh, the Chinese, the mainland Chinese government or the nationalist government of China, uh, have are no longer on mainland China. Now they are in Taiwan. And, of course, well, uh, who owns the gold? Well, the, the nationalist government can say it's us. The People's Republic of China can, can make a, a strong case that the gold really belongs to the Chinese people and that, and that they, as the kind of uh, political uh, sovereign representative of the Chinese people, have a greater entitlement to that gold. So, so there is a kind of um, a contested ownership 
that might uh, arise here. Regardless of the of what the outcome will be, something tells me that the public will never know. This will be taking place behind the scenes, behind closed doors. Well, there's there's a lot of things happening behind closed doors, um, and one of the things that we really need to be aware of is that uh, the amount of gold that the nationalist Chinese loaned or leased to the to the U.S. authorities to the Federal Reserve System, and that was physically taken uh, for safekeeping by uh, the U.S. Navy and transferred and so forth. That that gold is actually only a small amount of the total gold that was possessed by China and eventually taken out of China from uh, by the Japanese. And that, that raises a whole other area, which is gold that was illegally taken out of mainland China by occupied, occupying Japanese troops and part of a kind of covert Japanese operation called the Golden Lily transferred to other countries. And, and we are talking about and, and vast sums of gold, uh, as, as far as the kind of research indicates, that, that has been hidden around the world. And this is just a quick parenthesis. I always wonder why people give so much value to gold. Have you asked that yourself that question? Well, it's a historical uh, com um, commodity that was yes. used for uh, transactions. Trading. Gold was, was used um, going back all the way to the Roman era and, and even earlier than that. Uh, precious metals have been a very good way in which uh, uh, trade could be conducted. And if you look at, say, the way in which countries such as uh, China uh, were able to trade with Western countries historically, uh, there, was a, there was a kind of uh, movement of gold. I mean, if China is selling ceramics, spices, fine silks, and so forth, to, to the West um, during the, the whole kind of colonial era. Well, uh, how, how were those commodities, uh, how were those products paid for? There, there's been a historical movement of gold uh, for, for payment of that. So I, I think there's just been this kind of recognition of gold as a precious metal. And, and of course, this raises the kind of very exopolitical question of, well, um, uh, does this value of gold, is it purely because it, it's being used historically for, for trading, or was it because it was something that was highly valued by the gods? That's right. where I was going, yes. You know, that, that the gods valued gold. Now, of, of course, for some people, when they hear that term, well, they'll, they'll, they'll think, well, um, you know, this, this might be just a purely kind of re religious a belief system that gold was something that um, various mythological entities, um, deities, pagan deities uh, wanted. But in fact, um, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, people like Zechariah Sitchin and others sure. have, have argued very persuasively that in fact uh, these gods were very real beings, that they weren't mythological creatures at all, that they were very real beings, uh, that they came from another world, Using advanced technologies, they came to our world, and of all things that they valued most um, on our planet was this precious metal called gold. 
and that gold was associated with the gods because the gods found it to be something very highly valuable and sought after. And and I don't think the, the gods or the, the Anunnaki, as uh, Sitchin referred to them, saw gold as something that was used that that would facilitate a kind of a trading system that could be used for currency. I I think they had something else in mind when they viewed gold as this very highly sought after and precious metal. And and why, according to Sitchin, that the Anunnaki um, began mining gold on the on the earth. That um, according to Sitchin. Uh, humanity was created as a slave race to mine the gold, and, right. and of course there are there are many um, authors, researchers now that are finding these ancient gold sites around the planet, uh, such as in South Africa, uh, where uh, these very deep gold mines have been discovered uh, that could not possibly have been built using technology known technology uh, technology known to the ancient world. There, there had to be some advanced civilization that built those those mines, but these were apparently gold mines. And so, so gold mining goes back thousands and thousands of years and involves some very sophisticated technologies, involves extraterrestrials, and also involves the, or at least to some extent, the kind of bioengineering of uh, humanity or, or some species or some segments of, of humanity. And there are three terms that keep appearing throughout many civilizations for thousands of years. And, and three terms, gold, slavery, and the winged serpent. So gold obviously has significance from way before even became currency. And as you say, according to Zachariah Sitchin, the Anunnaki supposedly wanted to use it for their own planet to make it monatomic gold, to consume it and live forever and to put it around their atmosphere. But that, again, that's that's simply speculation. But there is a purpose of, of all of this, the, the black gold. And I want to know the study. What does it show? Your study, I know the Bilderberg Group is involved here too. Tell us more. Well, the Bilderberg Group is part of the way in which this system was set up for, for managing these huge quantities of gold that uh, were in, in covert circulation. And because this gold was going to be traded or moved around covertly and huge sums of, of money were involved where you had to have incredibly high denominations of uh, notes, created for for this uh, kind of illicit or black gold trade. Uh, there needed to be a way of kind of setting this up. And so the Bilderberg Group was the uh, primary organization for, for doing this. Now, the, the person who's done the most research in this regard is a man by the name of David Guyatt, who is a, a British investigative journalist. And he became involved in this issue back in the mid-1990s when he uh, began to do some research uh, for this Australian investor by the name of, uh, I think it was Ken Johnston. Um, and essentially, Johnston was in the very precarious position of uh, being in possession of some of these high-denomination Federal Reserve notes, and um, he came under suspicion of one of the, the big Australian multinational banks called Westpac, he uh, had deposited some of these uh, some of these um, notes for safe holding in the Westpac 
bank in London. They got suspicious when they saw these high denomination notes. I mean, we're talking about uh, you know several billion dollars um, altogether of high denomination notes. Um, you know, the bankers involved were very suspicious because they had not seen this. This is something um, that is only known to to those who are kind of involved in this covert trade. So for most bankers, most people in the legitimate banking industry, when they see these kind of, you know, 500 million or 100 million um, Federal Reserve notes, uh, bearer bonds and so forth, you know, they get very suspicious. They think, well, this, this has to be fraudulent. I've never seen anything like this before. And so essentially an investigation was begun um, and, this, and this man was then tried and uh, eventually jailed in England. And David Guyatt, Began uh, was in, became involved because uh, Johnson asked Guyatt for some assistance, sent him documentation, and, and hoped that Guyatt would be able to help him. Because as far as Johnson was concerned, you know, the, the, these uh, these Federal Reserve notes, these high denomination notes, uh, were, were very real. And so basically, uh, he felt that uh, he had a solid case, and he had the documents to prove that uh, he was at acting in good faith to try and redeem these notes on behalf of the owner. So he was just a, an agent, another agent, similar to, to Keenan's position with the Dragon family. So Johnson um, he has a, appealed to David Guyatt uh, for assistance. Guyatt's done all the research and has found that, in fact, uh, that this gold uh, was used um, for as the, as the collateral for these Federal Reserve notes being issued, these high-denomination notes. And Guyatt traces it back to the formation of the Bilderberg Group. He traces it back to 1954 and says that, well, it was in 1954 with the creation of the Bilderberg Group that you have what appears to be a secret gold treaty that was set up to deal with the covert trade of gold, whereby uh, a, a particular process would be followed in any efforts to redeem this gold. And anyone... Uh, who came into possession of these uh, Federal Reserve notes or bonds uh, that were bearer bonds for these for these golds? If they didn't follow the, the correct procedures, that these uh, notes would be declared fraudulent, and the people in possession of those uh, could be charged. And so this was what uh, Guyatt was able to determine through his investigation, and he he wanted to assist Johnson. Uh, to prove his innocence, but eventually, uh, unfortunately, uh, Johnson's uh, barristers, uh, that is his legal representatives in England, uh, decided not to not to submit all the documentation that Johnson had, and and the judge found Johnson guilty, sentenced him to two years jail, but he was released after a year, uh, and and then. He, and, but during this time, while Johnson is imprisoned, and after Johnson returns back to Australia, he continues to give David Guyatt all of the documentation. So eventually, Guyatt is convinced that an international system does exist for uh, coordinating and redeeming and trading all of these vast amounts of um, gold certificates, treasury notes, uh, so Federal Reserve notes, and the movement of, of this black gold. And it all goes back to the formation of the Bilderberg Group and the very first meeting of the Bilderberg Group in May of 1954. And of course, uh, Daniel Estelin does a great job with his research on the Bilderberg Group as well. But we have to take our one and only intermission. And we have so much more to discuss. When we come back, we're going to continue with this. Also, you wrote a new article, Michael, entitled China-U.S. Trade Imbalance, Bad Policy 
or payback for CIA use of stolen World War II gold, which is a continuation to your first one. But before we started the interview, I sent you a few other articles. One that, folks, you're going to find that sounds almost like science fiction. There's an asteroid out there called 433 Eros. And there's this company that's accepting resumes to take people up there to mine gold and live in the asteroid. And there will be <laughs> recreational facilities. Let me just tell you really quickly what it says. I came across a company with the name of Orbital Development among a number of projects. They're working on one called the Eros Project, which is designed to bring the issue into a United States of America federal court for a definitive decision on the new legal subject of space property law. They're doing this so that once the law passes, they can proceed. Because if the law's not there, they can go and mine and somebody else may claim ownership. Eros is a near-Earth asteroid of significant value, estimated at... 15.84 trillion dollars its orbit is relatively easy to travel to from earth so the asteroid is reasonably accessible and it has platinum gold iridium as mining progresses branch tunnels and caverns will be constructed for industry storage and recreation and also we're going to talk about newt gingrich when recently he was in florida at coco beach talking about building U.S. bases and having about 13,000 people so that they can proclaim the moon the 51st state. A lot of this stuff sounds like science fiction, but it's not when we come back. Michael, how will people get in touch with your work? Uh, they can just visit my website, exopolitics.org. I put up there um, all of my articles. Uh, people can read them. They're all for free. And uh, they can find the, the latest research that I'm uh, working on. And I'm always happy to correspond with people that uh, have uh, insights into any of the issues that I'm uh, actively studying. Great. I'm here with Dr. Michael Sala. This is Mel Fambergas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy. It's the first time in my life that I see the horizon as a curved line. It's emphasized with a dark blue aura. The breakable appearance scares me.
first day, everyone pointed to his country. At the third or fourth day, everyone pointed to his continent. Since the fifth day, we don't even mind the continents. We just see the Earth as a whole planet. This is Freeman, and you're listening to Veritas.